Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. All right, we're in our summer series called Conversations with God, and we're talking about prayer. We're talking about some key moments throughout the scriptures where people spoke with and prayed to God. We've talked about praying big, bold prayers. We've talked about praying desperate prayers. We've talked about prayer as wrestling. We've talked about prayers of blessing, prayers of confession, prayers of interceding on behalf of others. Here's a question. Do you ever come to God with the answer already in mind? Do you ever, not not that you're coming to God for the answer, but you're coming to God in hopes that he will accept your answer as the appropriate answer to the problem? Have you ever sat in on a prayer time and then, uh, you know, this blessed saint starts to pray? We pray for Farmer Johnny down the road. You know, I think his house number is 9427. And he had that problem again with that tractor. You know the one, God, the Massey Ferguson, the red one, yeah. And it happened in that field again, across the road to the left, you know, like we're, we're informing God of the situation as if he doesn't already know all the intricate details of the circumstance already. We feel like we have to come to God. We have to present the problem as we see it. We have to present the solution that we would prefer, the one that we would suggest, because we put a lot of thought into this, God. And if you would just respond this way, God, please answer our prayer if it be our will. I mean, sorry, your will, God. Please answer our prayer in this way, in this timing, God. Specifically this way. There's nothing wrong with praying specific prayers. But so often we come to God with the answer already in mind, like we know the situation maybe a little better than he does. We never say that but we kind of know how we want God to respond. I'm being facetious, you know, you get it. Do you go go to God with a full understanding of the situation and how you think it should be answered and you just hope that God will stamp it and sign it and give you the permits so that, you know, the ground can be broken and your answer to the problem, you can start to see it happen. Here's the tension. In our prayer life, when we pray, quite often we think we have maybe a handle on the situation, maybe a solution in mind, and God's answer very rarely fits the answer that maybe we thought was best, or maybe the timing that we thought was best, or maybe God doesn't answer in that direction at all. And the tension really hits home when we think about the evil and the pain and the suffering in this world and the struggle and the sin and the cancer and the sickness and the suffering. And we think, God, why don't you just solve these problems the way that I think they should be solved? God, why do you allow this to happen this way? And we struggle with that. We know people who have refused to turn to God because of the evil they see this in, in the world. And if God was truly God, then why, why all the evil and suffering? Why does God allow that to take place? We've had those conversations with people, I'm sure. 
But what if we stepped back? What if we considered our place in this vast creation and realized that maybe God has a handle on the situation more than we ever could? How would that change our prayer life? So enter the book of Job. We're going to dig into a few final chapters of the book, but I just want to give you kind of an overall context and a quick overview. There are so many questions around this book, like, number one, who is Job? He's this guy who's not an Israelite from the ancient East. And we don't get a whole lot of context beyond that. Like, where do these things actually take place? People have raised the question, is Job a real person? Or is it more of like a parable, like the ones that Jesus told? Is it more of an allegory? Is it more symbolic? Or is he an actual historical person? What's the date? Where's the place? What's the context? And then we can ask questions about the dinosaurs that the book seems to talk about and the historical context and who's the author. What's with the epic poetic nature of the book? It's a book of poetry. It's tucked in there with Psalms and Proverbs. What's going on in this book? In all of those questions, we can kind of get lost and we can lose sight on the main question, which is Job's question. Is God truly just? Does God actually do what is right and good and proper and true? And does he actually serve proper justice all the time? That's the big question of the book. Is God just? Have you ever asked that question? You face a situation in life, a struggle. You think you know the problem. You think you know what the answer should be, but God's answer doesn't seem to match where you think it should have gone. And you maybe ask the question, God, are you actually doing what is right in this situation? That's the question of the book of Job. Is God just? If God is infinite and omnipotent and sovereign and sustaining and holding creation in the palm of his hand, then why the evil? Why the suffering? It's a big question. Will God always do what is right? The Bible says that he's just. The Bible says that he's righteous. The Bible says that he's good. But it's one thing to read, and then it's another thing to believe and to hold on to through the storms of life, isn't it? So let's walk through the storyline here. Satan, Satan in the Hebrew, the great accuser. Somehow he's questioning Job's character before God in chapter one, and I hinted at this story last week. I forgot that I was going to be preaching on it this week, and then I threw you my storyline last week. So you kind of know what's going to happen here. Satan, the accuser. Job is only faithful to you, God, because of all the blessings and the gifts, because of the good life that you've given him. But if you take that away, he'll curse you to your face. So Satan is permitted... I love the idea that Satan needs God's permission. That unless God allows it, it can't happen. Satan takes Job's oxen, Job's donkeys, Job's sheep, Job's camels, and then Satan takes the life of his kids. And Job finds all this out in a moment's notice as these messengers are rushing all at the same time to share the news with him. In a moment, Job loses pretty much everything he has. We talked about this last week. He responds with worship. He says, naked I came and naked I will return. 
blessed be the name of the Lord. And our minds are just blown at that kind of desperate faith, right? Satan comes back to God and questions Job again. Look, I touched his stuff, but skin for skin, if you let me touch him, he'll surely turn and curse you to your face. So God permits it. Satan causes this, these harsh boils over Job and they're oozing, they're pussing, and it's disgusting. And it says some of the only relief that Job can get are these broken potsherds that he's using to scrape and release the pressure off of these oozing sores. It's vile, it's disgusting. And his wife says, curse God and die. And then Job's three friends arrive and they sit with Job seven days and seven nights in silence. They don't say anything, they just sit there. You gotta get yourself some friends who will sit with you in the pains of life, who aren't there to try and tell you what you should do or how it is or give their two cents or, hey, that's pretty bad. I had a situation in my life that was cut. You know what I'm saying? Just don't try and solve the issue for me right now. Just sit with me in my pain. And for seven days and seven nights, Aliphas, Zophar, Oh, and I can't think of the last guy's name, his third friend, Zophar. Bildad is the third guy. They sit with Job in his pain. Man, you want to have some friends like that, a community that will weep with you when you weep. It's really hard to go through suffering. It's even hard to go through suffering alone. Job has these three friends who show up. It's all good until they open their mouth and insert their feet, Right? Job expresses some of his grief to them after a week of silence. Why did I have to be born? Job questions. Where's the hope? And then the first friend says, well, I know this to be true, Job. This is the truth right here. Truth speak. The innocent are the ones who prosper. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge, Job. You must not be the innocent one in this scenario. And then his second friend, Bildad, he's like, Job, you should just repent. You know, obviously there's sin in your life, so just repent. And then his third friend, Zophar, you know what, Job, the way you're talking, all innocent and such, you deserve worse. <laughs> Wouldn't you just like to smack him if you were Job? Job responds, God allowed this to happen, not you guys. Still, I will hope in God. Job talks about the very real pains that people experience in this life. He's not unaware. Death comes to all, and it seems too soon. So his first friend comes back and he says, Job, you're not being respectful to God. His second friend says, Look, Job, I know this. Here's some truth God punishes the wicked. So you must be wicked. Thanks. His third friend is like, I second that. It's the wicked ones who suffer. I know that to be true. Then the first friend's like, yep, Job, you must be wicked. So there's all three friends. Job, you're just wicked. You just need to repent. That's the problem here. It's your sin that's caused all this pain and suffering in your life. Job's like, some miserable comforts you are. Thanks a lot. Do you ever get trapped in this thinking that... Um, Good things happen to good people and bad things 
happen to bad people. So if I want good things, then I need to be good to earn those good things. And if I don't want bad things, then I need to try not to do bad things because then bad things will happen. We get stuck in this cyclical thinking that's all based on our performance, isn't it? And Job says, look, the wicked prosper too. Haven't you guys seen this? The Bible says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. King Solomon talked about how the wicked prosper. King David talked about how the wicked prosper. That rule is broken. You just need to look around your community. Good people and bad people experience good things and bad things. Because this world is cursed and tainted because of sin. The gospel says, no one's good, no, not one. And what we all deserve, the wages of sin, is death. Anything beyond that is God's gracious, unmerited favor towards us that we don't deserve and we can't earn. It's not based on our performance. It's not based on how good we were or how bad we were. Job's like, you're wrong. Job's got some questions. You ever have questions for God? Where's my hope? Where is God in all of this? For two chapters, he fleshes out this question. Where are you, God, when all of this is taking place? Where is wisdom? Job makes his final defense against the accusations of his three friends and then he presents this question, his big final appeal. What is my life? Where is my hope? Where is God? Why are these things happening? And then this character Elihu comes in. He's kind of this rogue fourth friend, you know, he pops in. He says, God is just. God is majestic. It's like, kind of like he's John the Baptist being the forerunner for Jesus Christ. Before Jesus arrives, prepare the way, here he comes. Elihu is talking about God's majesty, and then God arrives, and God speaks. Look at Job chapter 38. We'll dig through the first seven verses. Verse one. Job 38 and verse one. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, just try and picture that. What is that like? Are they like sitting in this ancient Eastern country, sand, desert, I don't know what it looked like. And you can see this, this dust storm start to pick up. Have you ever seen a dust storm come through the desert? It's just like a wall of sand. Were they caught in the cloud? Like Moses went up the mountain, was in the cloud? God speaks out of the whirlwind. If you're walking down the sidewalk and somebody pulls up in a Ferrari and rolls down the window and says, hey you, and you look over and here he sits in a $200,000 Ferrari, do you think that maybe affects some of the presentation? Like if God shows up in a whirlwind, doesn't that speak volumes in and of itself? Verse two, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. I think God already knows. Dark, ignorant, grasping, groping, lacking insight. Job, your opinions are uninformed. You don't know the whole story. Verse three, 
is my favorite part of the whole passage. You ready? Dress for action like a man. You know, the Hebrew literally means put your pants on. Gird your loins, get up, and let's go. This isn't, this isn't like a gender comment. We, we know what this catchphrase means. Our world needs to hear this phrase. It's time to get up, get dressed, and face the music. Take some responsibility. Stand up, take ownership for the questions that you're taking. Here's your opportunity. You wanted to question God? Here's God face-to-face inviting you to question him. Get up, get dressed, and face me like a man. I love that. He says, I will question you and you make it known to me. Don't you love that sarcasm? You know that God uses sarcasm in scripture, in the ancient Hebrew? You answer me. You make it known to me, Job. Don't we use that with kids so often? Like, mom, dad, can I have treats for breakfast? Now, little Cindy Lou Who, if you eat treats for breakfast, what do you think is going to (laughs) happen? We already know what's going to happen, right? The questions aren't for our benefit. The questions are for their benefit to walk them through the process of thinking it out for themselves. Stand up, Job. I got some questions for you. You make it known to me. God already knows. Verse four, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. God turns the tables on Job's questions. Job's questions were, where were you, God? God's got some questions of his own. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you? Let's ask ourselves the question. Where was I when God laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when he spoke creation into existence? Ever thought about where you were before you were born? I showed a picture of the CN Tower there a while back. You remember we talked about the wise man who built his house on the rock. We talked about foundations, Christ being the chief cornerstone of the church. Foundations are so important. So let's say you're at the CN Tower. You're standing in the lobby. Oh, man. What were these guys thinking when they built this? I mean, the bathrooms are on the second floor. I've got to walk up the staircase to use the bathroom. What were they thinking? One elevator? What, man, if I was one of the engineers, didn't they know I'd have to be standing here waiting? Lunch is getting cold. One elevator? Where were you when they laid the foundation of the CN Tower and figured out all the mathematics to get that tower to stand, the highest tower in the world in its day? What do you have to say? Did you look at any of the blueprints? God says, Job, where were you? Verse five, who determined the measurements of the foundations of the earth? Surely you know, Job, fill me in. Come on, humor me. Who stretched the line upon it? Can you buy a measuring tape that long at home hardware? I don't know, Job. Maybe you could fill me in on all the engineering that went into the planet that you're standing on that's moving at 2,000 miles an hour, 67,000 miles an hour around the sun, and somehow the gravity in the atmosphere holds you to the face of the planet so you don't just go catapulting towards the east. Tell me, Job. Show me the plumb line that you use to measure out the foundation of the world. 
Come on, explain it to me, Job. Look at verse six. On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone? Do you think they knew the earth was round at this point and it hung in space? Did they still think it was flat and you'd fall off the edge of the ocean if you kept going? And what are they thinking it's sitting on top of? God says, what are its foundations? Where did you sink them? Are they four foot frost walls? Where'd you buy the sauna tubes? Where'd you get the concrete to fill in those elephant feet to support the foundations of the earth? Go ahead and tell me, Job. Explain it to me. How did you measure it out? Job would have used stone foundation technology back in that day, I assume, in this context. So Job, where would you stack the stones? And then what about that cornerstone? You know how Jesus is the chief cornerstone and everything is laid off of him? He's the first, the start. So where's the chief cornerstone, Job? Because you got to get that thing right if all the measurements are going to be true and correct and you're going to get the plumb line and make sure everything is level from that. What... Job, what is the earth relative to? Where's the starting point? God's like, fill me in, Job. Come on, tell me what this is all about. Verse seven. When the morning stars sang together, all the sons of God shouted for joy. When creation was created and all the angelic hosts sang the glories of God. Where were you, Job? How'd you enjoy that song? Come on, you must have been sitting, where were you? The fourth row when you were watching that all take place? Yeah, what'd you think of it? Oh, that's right. You weren't there. Isn't that what God is implying? Do you remember, Job? Weren't you there? Oh yeah, that's right. No, you weren't. Then God talks about the sea. He tells it how far it can come. Job, who holds the sea in its place? We were at the beach yesterday on the shoreline. It was one of the shorelines where like the, uh, the lawn with the cottages on it is all like eroding and you can just watch the soil run down. And I got to thinking like, if it's evolution in millions and billions of years, how is there anything left to be eroded? Wouldn't it just all be eroded, but then there's volcanoes and all that, and I don't know how all that stuff works. But somehow, the ocean stays where God said it would stay. And there it stays. Who hold back the ocean, Job? God asks, how deep is the sea, Job? Come on, you ever heard of Mariana's Trench? You know how deep it is, Job? Of course you don't. Submarines won't be invented for another 7,000 years. Where's snow? Where's hail stormed? Where does light originate from, Job? Who arranged the stars in the sky, Job? Can you move them? Can you throw your lasso up there and move the stars? Yeah, that's right, you can't. Let's bring this down like a million notches to somewhere where maybe it's a little more relevant. We tend to be somewhat critical, don't we? We can get into a critical spirit. A critical mind is great. We want critical minds. We want people who think through the truth, rightly divide the truth. Critical spirit, not so great. And sometimes we can start to think in the church, you know, oh man, this program is so disorganized and it just frustrates the life out of me. Or, or the band's gonna sing that song again? Or oh, Josh is gonna go overtime? Again, or, oh man, the, the heating and cooling system, we were talking about that this morning, or like, oh, that staircase is so narrow and it just, you send all the kids out there and it's just a bottleneck and it's just, where were you 
when the first horseback riding traveling evangelists came into Great Village and started winning people for the Lord? And where were we when the first community of Christians started gathering here? Where were we when this original building was founded? How many years ago? Is it like 160 now? Where were we when that foundation was laid? And for many of us, where were we when, when this facility was put up? Where were we when all the sermons were being preached and the hours were being sacrificed and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the love and the charity and all the time and effort that went into it? Where were we? For most of us, for myself, I just showed up three years ago. I've only heard some of the stories. I didn't see the sore backs. I didn't see the money that was contributed. I didn't see the prayers that were prayed. I didn't see the conversations that were had. Who am I to be critical, to question? How does this affect a critical spirit? How might that change our questions? How might it change our prayer time if we got a God perspective on the issue? If only we were there, but we weren't. And God's point is, you do well to remember this, Job. When you question my ways, my dealings, my righteousness, my justice, mercy, and love, my faithfulness, remember that you are limited. You don't get to see the whole picture. You just see your little segment. Apart from my power and apart from my spirit, you are so limited, Job. You don't get to see the whole scenario. You don't know. You don't have all the answers. And then God makes his majesty just a little more intimate and a smaller scale. And he begins to talk about the animal kingdom in Job chapter 39. He talks about the eagle, how far the eagle can see. The horse and the horse's majestic snorting. How's that for poetic language? The ostrich, how fast it can run. The work capacity of the wild ox, how much weight it can pull. Then God talks about mountain goats and deer as they're giving birth. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Counting down the days and the months. The mother crouching to give birth to her young. Have you ever seen that little deer? You watch Bambi, right? They're trying to figure out their legs and how that works. Have you ever seen a baby deer, a baby goat, that cute little furry, slimy ball thing. And then watching them grow up and leave home. You ever watched a deer grow up and leave home? Probably not. But God takes this grand scale of light and darkness and weather and earth and space and stars and then he brings it down to a doe giving birth to a fawn and watching it as it grows up. You think about God caring for the sparrow. How much more does he care for you? Because you're of far more worth and value than a sparrow. Job chapter 40. It's time for Job to speak up. Verses one to five. It's his response. The Lord said to Job in verse one, Job chapter 40 and verse two, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, 
I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Now, laying the hand on the mouth speaks of wonder and it speaks of silencing. Have you ever gasped like, oh. I have spoken once and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. Job is humbled to silence. And it's not because of all the accusations of his friends. It's because he came face to face with the majesty and the reality of the greatness and infinite power of Almighty God. And it brought him to his knees in humility. I am of small account. He was struck with the reality of his own lowliness in comparison to who, who God is and how great he is. It's like Jesus saying in John 8, where the spirit, when the spirit of truth comes, he will convict the world of sin. Coming face to face with the reality of who God is, the truth of who God is, and the truth of who we are in comparison, it convicts, doesn't it? It brings humility. It brings the reality of our situation in relation to God. Albert Barnes says this, it's a very different thing to maintain our cause before God from what it is to maintain it before people. Though we may attempt to vindicate our own righteousness when we argue with our fellow creatures, yet when we come to maintain it before God, we shall be dumb. I like that. On earth, people vindicate themselves. But what will those people do when they stand before God in the judgment? We like to think in a day and age where we have all the information at our fingertips and if there's something we don't know, we can just pull it out and ask Uncle Google and we can have all the info right there. But has that really made us any wiser, any smarter? Do we really have a better handle on the whole picture and the whole story? We as a generation, as a culture, we are so opinionated, aren't we? We have all these slogans like your truth, my truth, there is no absolute truth and everybody can just have their own opinion and we have all these platforms to express our opinions and God says, why don't you get dressed like a man, stand up and face me, see my majesty and glory in all of creation and then I want to hear your opinion. <laughs> what are your thoughts after seeing how great and glorious I am and how small you are in comparison. And Job just puts his hand over his mouth. I have nothing to answer, God. Job stood his ground before his friends. Why, God? Where are you, God? What's my hope, God? Why was I born, God? But then when he had the opportunity to stand before God, I have nothing to say, God. God goes at Job again says, do you have an arm like mine? Do you have a voice of thunder like my voice? Take a look at the behemoth, Job, as it trounces through the field. Look at the size of its legs, the size of its belly, the size of its tail. It's like iron. And then he says, come on out to the sea, Job. Can you reel in Leviathan? Leviathan is like this fire-breathing dragon with scales and sharp points down its back and its belly and it's got these crazy teeth and it says when it opens its mouth it shoots fire and sparks. It says it 
when it, when it breaches out of the water and comes back down, no one can stand. It's like the, the splash zone at the Shamu show at SeaWorld, right? Except it's Leviathan. Like I think of that scene in Jurassic Park where that, that huge creature comes out of the water. The Bible is talking about something crazy like that and, and God talks about it for a whole chapter. Come on, Job, what are you gonna do? Can you harpoon it? Can you reel it in? Can you put a ring in its nose and train it as your pet? No, you can't. Job 42, verses one to six. This is where we'll close. This is Job's final answer to the Lord. Chapter 42 and verse one. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of God? Nothing. God, I know you're omnipotent. I know you have all power. You're sovereign above all. Nothing can stop your plans. Job admits it. Verse three, Job repeats the question that God gave him, kind of like you get a child to repeat the question that you asked them just to make sure they heard and understood. Job says, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? The same thing that God questioned him with. And he says, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. It sounds like the psalmist in 139, verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. How you formed me in my mother's wombs, my, my inward part intricately woven together. You know my coming, my sitting, my rising up. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. There's no way I can attain to all that you know, God. Sounds like Isaiah 55, 9. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so my ways are above your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts. There comes a point in all this questioning where we have to say, God, I'm limited. A lot of this is beyond my understanding because you are so infinite. You are so sovereign and omnipotent. I'm never going to be able to fully understand all that you are or your dealings in the world. Each of us have to come to a point where we admit that. Look at verse four of Job chapter 42. Job repeats another thing that God said. Hear and I will speak. I will question you. You make it known to me. That first thing that God said when he arrived and spoke out of the whirlwind. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. I love this. But now my eye sees you. Aren't there so many testimonies like that? I grew up in church. I heard the stories in Sunday school. I knew that there was an ark and Noah and the animals. And I knew that God rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fire. I knew that Jesus rose from the dead. But there came a point where that knowledge had to transition, what is it, 18 inches? From my head to my heart. Where it became less about an academic knowledge of who God is and more about a, a relational, experiential knowledge of not only who God is, but who he is to me. I had heard of you, God, but now my eye sees you. I've had my eyes open to who God is and what he's capable of. God rebukes Job's friends. And then he flips the tables. He, he commands them to prepare a sacrifice and he asks Job to pray for his friends. 
Then God restores Job's fortunes, basically double of what he had before. And it says that he had the three most beautiful daughters in all the land. Kind of sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Part of this poetic language. He lived another 140 years and saw four generations in his family, grandkids and great-grandkids. Here's the big thought. How would it affect our prayer life if we admitted that we don't really know the situation, we don't really know all the ins and outs, we don't really have the best solution to the problem that we're praying about, but we know the one who does, and we know that his answers are always in the best timing, and his ways and his dealings with man are always good and right and true and just. What if we released some of the need to know? What if we stop praying prayers that explain situations to God? And what if we started praying prayers that would request God's explanation of the situation? What if, what if we went into our prayer time and we didn't have all the answers in mind? What if instead we went to God in prayer for the answers? in accordance with his word, in accordance with his working in creation and his work through his spirit in our hearts? What if we just admitted, I don't know? Do you know how freeing that statement is? And what if instead we, we chose to live and act with the truth and the understanding of the reality that God does, God knows the situation, he knows what the situation would be like if we chose option A, B, C, D, or any other letter on any other alphabet in any other universe. God knows all the intricate details of every situation. So why would we come to him with this thought that we have the situation handled and we know what the best possible solution is? What if instead we left it with God knowing that he knows all? Could we do that? Can you join me in prayer as we close this morning? God, thank you so much for your infinite, sovereign, almighty power. Thank you for your majesty that we can see on the mountains and the ocean and the stars at night. Your glory in this earth as it goes through the globe. I think of those new deep space images from this telescope that's come up online and we can see galaxies beyond galaxies that we've never been able to see before and it just all proclaims your handiwork. You spoke it into existence. Who are we that we think we could do better? God, thank you that you know our situation. You know our pain, you know our suffering, you know our struggle. You're a friend who sticks closer than a brother. You, your son, is, is the savior who endured all things that we've endured, every temptation yet without sin and took our sin to the cross in our place to pay the death that we could not pay. And then he rose again by the power of the spirit, the spirit that he has given us through faith that we can have new life, abundant life. God, we thank you for your incredible plan of redemption for humankind. 
for this gospel, this good news message of your son Jesus Christ and his payment for sin and his resurrection that secures new life. God, I pray you'd give us a broader scope of what you're doing in this world. Help us not to be so fixated on our problems and the way that we think they should be solved. But God, help us to zoom way out so that we can see your dealings throughout history with all of mankind and what you're doing in the world today. God, thank you for how you love us and you care for us. You have every hair on our head numbered. and We need not worry. Jesus, we thank you for these things. In your precious name, amen.